From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at gifted services, programs and supports offered by schools to students with exceptional talents or abilities. A new study, however, finds that those services are more likely to be directed to students from wealthier, more advantaged families. The kids from the highest SES family, so the kids in that top 20%, they were somewhere between six and seven times as likely to receive gifted services as kids in the bottom 20%. We welcome Vanderbilt University's Jason Grissom, co-author of one of the first national studies examining the relationship between socioeconomic status and gifted services. Grissom joins us on Research Minutes to discuss his team's findings So even when we're looking at kids that are in the same school, that have the same achievement scores, those kids that are in the top 20% of SES are still about twice as likely to receive gifted services. And that finding is, I think, is really troubling. And some important implications for gifted services policy, practice, and future research. Say, I think this is a, a complicated problem which will probably require taking multiple tacks or having multiple strategies to really be able to address. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Hugh-Muller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Grissom, Associate Professor with the Peabody College of Education and Human Development at Vanderbilt University. Welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Thanks for having me. So today, we're discussing your new study co-authored with the University of Florida's Chris Redding and Vanderbilt's Joshua Bleiberg, titled Money Over Merit, Socioeconomic Gaps in Receipt of Gifted Services. It was published this fall in Harvard Educational Review And it takes a new look at how we identify students as gifted, particularly in relation to their socioeconomic status or SES. To start, could you give us a little bit of a context? What are gifted services as they apply in today's educational climate? And what did we know about them prior to this study? Great question. So gifted programs provide services to uh, students with exceptional aptitudes or talents. So lots of local school districts have gifted programs or provide gifted services of some kind, Um, but what kinds of services are provided to those students really varies often from district to district. So in some places, there are special schools. In other places, the gifted services take the forms of pullouts where students are pulled out of general education classrooms for some portion of the school day or maybe a few times during the week to receive some Enrichment services Um, in other districts, it might just be enrichment that takes place within the general classroom environment. Um, But the general idea is that, you know, students with exceptional aptitudes or exceptional talents need specialized services to help them realize the potential that they have. And so schools and districts have, you know, usually use gifted programs as a strategy to try to um, help them meet that potential. So there's a lot of research. Um, There's a whole field of gifted education that studies the provision of gifted services and how students benefit from those services and so forth. Uh, my particular work in the in the area of gifted programs looks at who gets into uh, gifted programs and uh, issues around student selection and assignment. So what was it that led you to pursue this particular line of research? Were there specific questions you were looking to answer or a particular reason you felt this was an issue worthy of investigation? 
So I've been interested in disproportionalities in gifted service receipt for a long time. I've written several studies that were about inequitable provision of gifted services with respect to student characteristics, although all of my prior work and and a lot of the prior work on this topic is focused on race and ethnicity. So Chris Redding and I authored a study in 2016 that really dug into this question of of racial and ethnic disproportionality in gifted services and showed that there were big differences in the likelihood that white and Asian students on the one hand and black and Latinx students on the other hand were assigned to gifted services. And we investigated the factors that drove those racial and ethnic differences. And one of the factors that sort of emerged from that study as being important was the socioeconomic status of the family that students from different racial groups come from. And so in this most recent study is, is almost like a follow-up to the earlier study where we had noticed that family socioeconomic status seemed to be relevant. And, and that's not really that surprising. There's lots of other research done by other folks that suggests that high-income kids are more likely to find themselves in, in gifted programs. But we wanted to do the same kind of analysis that we had done for race and ethnicity to really dig into this question of what those socioeconomic status disproportionalities look like, and could we say something about where they come from? As you mentioned in this paper, your study is one of the first of its kind to take a look at SES gaps in gifted services on a national scale. Could you give us an overview of the scope of your research and how you attempted to answer those questions? So the 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 data set that we use here is called the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study, or the ECLS, or some people call it the Eccles data. It's a data set that is collected by the federal government that tracks a large cohort of students from kindergarten through elementary school. They've actually run multiple cohorts of this study. So in our study, we draw on the cohort that began kindergarten in the 1998-99 school year. Uh, For the majority of our analysis, there was a, a later cohort that started in 2011. When we were doing our analysis, we only had data up through third grade for that second cohort, but we we did replicate our analysis at least through third grade with the data from the second cohort as well. So what's really valuable about the ECLS data is, you know, they're, they're tracking this cohort as it moves through elementary school, and it's collecting a lot of information about those students at each wave. In particular, they're measuring the socioeconomic status of the of the students and the families that are in the study. And the way that they do that is they collect information about family income, parental education, the occupational prestige of the parents, and they use that to create an index measure of SES. The other thing that's really uh, valuable about the ECLS data is that at each one of the survey, uh, the data collection waves, uh, the researchers tested the kids. So they gave them a test in math and reading. It was a low stakes test. It wasn't a test that the school saw, but it did give us a measure of the kids' achievement in those two subjects at each of, at each of the data collection points. That's really important because obviously gifted services are going to be aimed at kids that are very high aptitude and their achievement levels in math and reading, I think, are going to be a pretty good proxy for their aptitude level. And so we've got these data. They're nationally representative. It's a, it's a large sample and you know drawn from all over the United States. And what we were able to do is in each wave, we can see if the student is receiving gifted services or not. And we can essentially predict the likelihood that a student is receiving gifted services as a function of other factors. So other background factors like SES, but also race, ethnicity, gender, age at time of kindergarten entry, and so forth. And then we can see characteristics of the classrooms that they're in, characteristics of the schools that they attend. 
so forth. And so account for lots of other factors that may contribute to whether or not a student is receiving gifted services or not. And I'll say one more thing that the data allow us to do because within each school, the the researchers are tracking, you know, they were tracking often many students within the same school as they moved through their elementary years. And so we could even statistically isolate our subjects so that we could make comparisons among uh, high SES and low SES students uh, within the same school. And so the, the data set are really powerful for trying to, to really get at multiple different potential reasons or factors that might lead a student to be assigned to gifted services or not. That's interesting. So let's turn then to your findings. Could you walk us through what you learned about gifted services and how accessible they may be at different ends of the economic spectrum? So what we started out with was just a descriptive analysis. We just wanted to see who was receiving gifted services and who wasn't, particularly with respect to family socioeconomic status. And so we can divide families that these kids are coming from uh, roughly into fifths. So we can look at the kids that are in the bottom 20% of socioeconomic status. um, And then we can look at the next 20%, the next 20% all the way up to the, the students that are in the top 20% of socioeconomic status. And the big sort of top line finding from that descriptive analysis is that just looking at the raw numbers, the likelihood that a kid receives gifted services is really clearly a function of, of their socioeconomic status of their families. And in particular, the kids from the highest SES family, so the, the kids in that top 20%, they were somewhere between six and seven times as likely to receive gifted services as kids in the bottom 20%. So a big, big descriptive difference in the likelihood that a child is receiving services is correlated with things like family income and parental education. So on the one hand, I mean, those numbers are really large. Those differences are really large, but clearly there's lots going on that uh, makes it maybe not so surprising that high income kids are more likely to find themselves in, in gifted services and so in particular, you know, we wanted to look at the role of what kinds of schools those kids went to and also what their achievement levels were. And the you know, school sorting matters because some schools might have very robust gifted program offerings. And if uh, you know, a, a school that has a gifted program, you might expect kids are more likely to go into gifted services where there's a robust gifted program and maybe high income parents are more likely to buy houses in elementary enrollment zones where those programs exist. So so that could be one factor. We wanted to look at that. It could also be the case that kids who are high income, they've got more opportunities. They are coming from the kinds of families that maybe produce environments that uh, create more opportunities to learn. And so sure, their achievement levels are higher uh, as a result. And so maybe that's what's driving this SES gradient. So we wanted to look at that as well. And so we can model the gifted service provision as a function of all of these other characteristics. But in particular, we can make comparisons between kids that are the same, that are in the same school, as I said before, and that also have the same achievement scores. And so the second big finding from our study is that even when we do all of that statistical equating, so even when we're looking at kids that are in the same school that have the same achievement scores and are similar on these other kinds of observable background characteristics that we can measure, those kids that are in the top 20% of SES are still about twice as likely as kids in the bottom 20% to receive gifted services. And that finding is, I think, is really troubling because we're talking about kids with the same ostensible access to gifted programs. I mean, they're in schools that have them or don't, you know, they're, they're in the same school environment. And because they're the same age, 
they're going to school every day you know, with the same teachers and so forth, and they have the same achievement levels. And yet the kids that are from high SES families are much more likely to be in those gifted programs than their otherwise similar peers in those same classrooms. I think the logical next question to that would be, why? Did your team come away with any indication as to what could be driving those gaps among students who are otherwise relatively similar? So we we looked really hard for answers to that particular question. So the ECLS data are really rich, really rich data that collect, you know, collecting survey information from parents, for example, about their engagement with the school and about their other resources that they have. So how many books they have in the home, how often they read to their children, those kinds of things. And certainly those things are correlated with family SES. High SES families are more engaged with school and, and so forth. I mean, we thought that might help us explain this relationship between SES and, and gifted service receipt, but it really didn't. We sort of combed the data for different kinds of potential explanations um, like this, and and we really couldn't nail much down. Uh, and that was a disappointment to us. I think that what we're facing here is that despite the richness of the data, we didn't have the data that you'd really need to be able to ferret out what's driving this gifted SES relationship, because what we can't observe are things like parental advocacy for parents going to school and saying, I think my child might be gifted. You know, they're, they're not indicators of that in the data. They're not opportunities for us to observe. Has the parent sent the child to a private psychologist to give uh, that child maybe a differential opportunity to be identified as gifted through a non-schooling route? And so forth. So th- there are these other likely mechanisms that have been documented in other work, in qualitative work, investigating how um, high SES families engage in the process of having their kids identified that we just don't have uh, data on uh, in the ECLS, despite how good those data are. So I think this is a, a big, important area for folks to dig into in the future, uh, maybe with different data to try to understand these underlying mechanisms a little bit better. It certainly does sound like a realm for future research, which I did want to ask you about in a second. But first, I'm curious to know what you think the implications are here, um, either for education policy, for practice, or for school leaders who are hoping to mitigate or somehow address these kinds of gaps in their own schools. Yeah, so the question you're asking here is, well, there are these big disproportionalities, but how do we fix them? And, you know, I think to answer the question, you really need to know the mechanisms. And we have some sense of the mechanisms from other work. And as I just said, you know, we really want to try to dig into that more. But I think there are, there's still a few options on the table, I think, for school leaders, other district folks that might be thinking about how to address disproportionalities. What are some of those good options? So I think one that uh, has a lot of promise is what we call universal screening. The idea of universal screening is that we give an assessment to all kids. So we take discretion out of the process, either teacher discretion out of the process or parent discretion out of the process by essentially giving everyone some kind of assessment that can be part of a, a gifted evaluation process. So if the if the mechanism here is maybe teachers are more likely to see signs of giftedness in high SES students or parents of high SES students are more likely to advocate on their students' behalf. If those are the mechanisms that are driving it, you know, parental discretion or teacher discretion, universal screening is a way to take discretion out. Okay. So give every child equal likelihood of being identified. In the absence of being able to do universal screening, which, you know, some districts have experimented with and then abandoned because it can be expensive, 
there are other steps that can be taken. So teachers maybe could be trained on uh, markers of giftedness in, uh, in low SES kids, for example. Or we could experiment with changing the criteria. So there is some concern uh, among gifted scholars that the assessments that we use to identify kids as gifted have biases baked into them, biases that give advantages to high SES kids. And either we want to take a hard look at those tests and see if those are the right ones, or maybe we want to supplement or augment those tests with other criteria that maybe would help to level out the advantages that high SES kids get. Now, I think there's a caution there because I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's generally probably a good idea to think about using multiple criteria to identify kids as gifted. But I think often the additional criteria that we use, which might be things like demonstrated creativity or leadership, those criteria might also be places where high SES kids are going to have advantages as well because they may have access to enrichment activities, extracurricular activities that low SES kids don't have. So, I mean, it's not very satisfying, but all of that is to say, I think this is a, a complicated problem, which will probably require taking multiple tacks or having multiple strategies to really be able to address. And my last question, which you kind of answered a little bit already, but what do you think are the opportunities here for future research, either for, for your team or, or others who are interested in this realm of gifted services? So I, th- I think there's two big opportunities, and I've alluded to both of them already. So one is understanding the mechanisms better, and it's pretty clear in our data that high SES kids have advantages here, but we don't know very much about, at least from our work, uh, that we have some uh, hints from other work about where specifically those advantages come from. And so this is primarily driven by differences in, in what parents are doing or differences in what teachers are doing or other processes in the school. And the answer to that question might vary a bit from place to place, but I think understanding those mechanisms is really important for research. It's also really important for policy because obviously having a good handle on those mechanisms is going to be important for identifying what solutions to the problem are most appropriate. And the second area is investigating those solutions. So I think there are school districts around the country that increasingly are trying to get serious about the issue of disproportionality in gifted services, be those racial and ethnic or income or uh, differences between English language learners and non-English language learners and so forth. And so I think researchers really looking at those opportunities to, to look at what districts are doing locally to try to ameliorate those differences and learning about what's successful, where it's successful, in what contexts uh, is really valuable for the growing number of districts that I think are trying to find solutions to this particular problem. Well, this is incredible work, Jason, and I encourage all of our listeners to read the full article. Again, it's titled Money Over Merit, Socioeconomic Gaps in Receipt of Gifted Services, and it's been published in the fall 2019 issue of Harvard Educational Review. Jason Grissom, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast or to subscribe to the series, visit us at researchminutes.org. To let us know what you think about this episode or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRE Hub. That's C P R E Hub.